Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to a new episode of Blockhead. Today, Dennis Kitchen returns to complete the uh, second half of our interview, our career-spanning interview with the great Dennis Kitchen. And uh, I have to say, I really enjoy, I really enjoy talking to Dennis. It's, it's just, there's, first of all, so much to talk about, but he's just such a generous guest and so willing to, to go over just about everything in his multifaceted and extraordinary career. And so, uh, this is a, this is a long, long interview. It's probably going to take you a couple days to get through it, but, uh, you know, I was just listening to it again the other day and, uh, his stories and and what he's going to say are just so interesting that, uh, you know, it's compelling. I couldn't stop listening. So, uh, and I was there, you know, for the, for the discussion, but, uh, it's great to relive it anyway. I love talking to Dennis and I hope to have him on again someday. Maybe when his next book comes out. So, uh, listen, I'm not going to take up too much of your time right now, anyway. Uh, but uh, if you want to know more about Dennis Kitchen, if you are, you know, compelled to uh, to look into the career of Dennis Kitchen, into his art, into his publishing history at Kitchen Sink. Uh, there are some guides that you can pick up, and and one of one of those that's been so important to to me in preparing for this interview was a wonderful book put together by John Cook. And John Cook, as you know, is the editor creator of Comic Book Artist uh, and Comic Book Creator, a wonderful series of magazines, you know, that have done you know, what I'm doing here, but just to the nth degree, uh, you know, in chronicling uh, comic book and comics history, John's got a, a cast a wide net. And uh, I just love those magazines. And I go back to them over and over again. And well, John did a couple of years ago, uh, really an exhaustive interview with Dennis. And with many people who know him. <laughs> and all of that's included in a wonderful volume that comes from Tomorrow's. And that is called Everything, Including the Kitchen Sink, the definitive interview with Dennis Kitchen by John B. Cook. And I've got to I, I've tell you, it's just a great book. And uh, it really is wonderful. And uh, if you enjoyed this interview, you're going to love this book. So search that out. And I have to, you know, just say thank you to John for uh, really everything he did in this book and, and for the help that it, it gave to me in preparing for this. Also, just, you know, hi, John Cook. Uh, I hope you're listening uh, wherever you are because uh, I love your magazine and um, thank you for all you've done there. But anyway, here, here we go. Uh, everything including the kitchen sink, the definitive interview with Dennis Kitchen by John Cook. So uh, you can pick that up from tomorrow's check into that tomorrows.com which if you don't know about of course you must know about but uh, you really should there's so much great stuff at tomorrows tomorrows.com just how it sounds t-w-o 
M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. Another great book, Kitchen Sink Press, The First of 25 Years by Dave Schreiner, which chronicles exactly that, uh, really right up from the beginning, right up into uh, the, um, the merger with Tundra, uh, the ill-fated merger with Tundra. And so it's great because it, it really takes you through the story of Kitchen Sink and, and the highs and lows of the company over a course of 25 years. And, and you really get to see the breadth of what you know, Kitchen Sink did, what they were capable of. Um, Oddly Compelling Art of Dennis Kitchen. Uh, this is a great book uh, covering really exactly that. This focuses on Dennis's work as a cartoonist, uh, as an artist, and, uh, you know, it opens up some doors. Really, if you think of Dennis Kitchen as, as nothing more than a great publisher or editor, your eyes will be opened by what a great cartoonist he is, and uh, just another one of those great luminaries from the era of underground comics, an unsung luminary, really, a lot of times, uh, because I think... His own work as a cartoonist has been overshadowed by his work as a publisher. But he is indeed one of the greats, and this book really makes that clear. So, uh, The Oddly Compelling Art of Dennis Kitchen from Dark Horse. All of these books are a number of years old, but you can you can get them still. So, seek them out after you've listened to this interview and you want more. <laughs> seek them out and uh, and learn more about Dennis Kitchen and his, his career and his great work. In comics. So without further ado, then, let's get right to the show, okay? Dennis Kitchen and myself in conversation. I hope the New Year's treating you well so far, as short of as uh, short as it has been so far. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, it's I'm I'm really glad to have you back on the show again, uh, to pick up where we left off because uh, there's still so much more to talk about in regard to uh, Dennis Kitchen and Kitchen Sink and everything that you've done over the course of your career. It's like too where, much to fit into. What's that? Where did we leave off? <laughs> well, uh, we left off uh, right about, actually, it's crazy. We got to the, the early 70s, I think, and uh, really that's about it. We talked a little bit about some of your uh, ancillary projects. Projects. Um, uh, among the last things we were talking about was Al Cap, and that's interesting. Actually, I know this is not exactly following chronology. Of course, it's way off. But I've actually I've been reading uh, your book, The Art of Harvey Kurtzman, and while it's fresh in my mind, I thought I would just you know see if we could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, how that book came together, and uh, you know how how you worked it out, how, how you laid it out and, um, the whole process involved. So, sure. you know, obviously Harvey Kurtzman is not only a person near and dear to your heart, but also a subject near and dear to your heart. Right. And so, uh, it w when did the idea of a, a book devoted to the art of Harvey Kurtzman, uh, come to mind? Well, I think it was always in the back of my mind, but, um, uh... Sometime around uh, probably 2007 or so, uh, I was approached by Charlie Kochman, an editor at uh, Abrams with his own uh, comic art uh, imprint. And he asked me if I would uh, consider writing a, a biography of Harvey. And um, 
I'm I'm always busy, and so I was hesitant to take on such a major project with the workload I had. So I said, let me think about it. And I had been talking to Paul Buell, uh, who is a pretty prolific uh, writer and editor and professor and also a huge fan of Harvey and EC's. And so I asked him if he might consider co-writing it in the same way that I've co-written a couple of other books because that just makes it go easier and it uh, it kind of forces me to devote time without being single-handedly responsible. And Paul was very uh, uh, interested in that. So, so that's how I committed to uh, the book. And also my... Uh, one of my agency partners, John Lind, who's an amazing designer, uh, agreed to take on the book as the designer. And that was important because uh, I felt this had to be a visual book that Harvey himself would be proud of because mm-hmm. he had an amazing eye. And I thought John could work with me in the visual archive to, to make it as perfect as possible. So I'm very pleased with the uh, with the result um yeah the the book itself is beautiful uh this is this came out in 2009 i believe as a hardcover yeah um and and it's it really is a beautiful book um it's got a generous helping of wonderful harvey kurtzman art and uh and preliminary art which is and and you know some of the things that are in there are just incredible like the um Oh, all of the preliminary work that that Harvey Kurtzman did for the the I guess you could call them thumbnails, but they're also like storyboards that he did at EC uh, for Frontline Combat and uh, Two Fisted Tales, and then uh, some great examples of process art from Little Annie Fanny at the end of his career, which is absolutely stunning, actually. Yeah, um, those are really those those um I almost like the preliminary work for Little Annie Fanny any better than the the finished work uh well it's i i i tend to agree it's certainly pure kurtzman that's his pencil work is just so full of vitality and energy and uh it's amazing um uh, john and i actually had planned to do a collection of harvey's pencil preliminaries as part of our in our imprint for dark horse the kitchen uh-huh. books Unfortunately, um, after John had already scanned the material and we had started to schedule it, we ran into political snags. Um, uh, As uh, I guess won't surprise you, given the politics of the day, there were some individuals at Dark Horse who found the material sexist and offensive. Uh huh. And. I'll just say briefly that uh, while Mike Richardson wanted to have the book out as well, he also didn't need internal political problems, and he erred on the side of caution, and the book was canceled. Oh, man. What a shame. Uh, I mean, you know, it's of historical importance, and so, you know, whether it is or isn't uh, of well, one- it's it's artistic it's yes it's historically important and my god it's not pornographic uh, it's it's of its time it's yeah. of the 60s and 70s and and uh, it's a 
it's a genius uh, at work and a great insight into his process. So let's just leave it at this. If any other publishers are listening to your uh, podcast, uh-huh. I would be happy to talk to them about this yeah. project. Wow, that would be a, uh, I would love to see that book. I would really love to see that book. Just, you know, um, I have, a, 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 well, you know, a background in painting and whatnot. And when I look at those preliminaries for Little Annie Fanny, what knocks me out are the color, is the color work. More than anything else, it's like, it's almost like expressionist painting. It's so vivid. Right. And, um, you know, it, it really stands aside from, like, in particular, the Little Annie Fanny stuff, aside from the fact that, um, you know, it, it's, associated with that you look at it just as a work of art you could turn it upside down and it's still gorgeous stuff the marks are beautiful and um is you know uh it strikes me just just to add to take nothing away from will elder who is a genius oh yeah the finishes are magnificent but but harvey obviously he wrote it he did these layouts which are amazing and the colored guides, which, as you said, are kind of abstract paintings on their own. Mm-hmm. So at every stage, he was guiding Elder, and they were the perfect collaborators in the sense that oh. uh, commercial reality demanded that they be as slick as possible. But what sure. Harvey did leading up to that is it, it needs further scrutiny, and it ought to be recorded so people can see more than yeah. Of examples of, of what he what he did. For- yeah, you know, the first time I, I encountered those was at uh, one of the Masters of Comics of American Comics Art shows in New York, and I was I was just like stunned, and and it was in a room of some really wonderful, great stuff that was you know Kurtzman inspired, you know Robert Crumb and and a variety of other underground cartoonists who would, I think it was Crumb, I can't remember if anybody else Spiegelman maybe in that room, but. Anyway, I was, in the New York, in the New York exhibit, Spiegelman bowed out because he didn't like the venue. Oh, right. So it really it was seen at two venues in Los Angeles. And then the only institution, oddly enough, that combined both shows was the Milwaukee Art Museum, where I was able to give a, a walking tour and a lecture. But when it moved to New York, which you would think would be uh, handled very well, the venues were just not ideal, and mm. I think uh, half of it had to go to was it Newark maybe? Yeah. The other yeah. part was I think the Jewish Museum in New York, which was a small venue. Yep. So it's a shame that such a wonderful exhibit didn't really get a wider exposure. You know, I I I absolutely agree, and and it it's hard to not walk away from that without feeling that somehow that the 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 um what is it the museum gods or the those people in charge of what is you know identifiable as art fine art worthy of museum walls um still have some kind of prejudice about comics art um, yeah I, I believe the curators had provisionally arranged for the show to be at an unnamed museum in new york which um uh, and again, I don't know which individuals or board was responsible, but they basically looked their nose down on comics and said no. So they were forced to scramble to the alternative sites. 
it's amazing we in this day and age it really is after everything that's happened uh that comics art still needs to prove itself to those people who are the gatekeepers of high you know what is called high culture high art and you know it's really a sad thing but in that room and it was at the jewish museum where i saw the kurtzman preliminaries they just they popped off of the wall and i kept going back and looking at them they were so astounding and and what's wonderful in this book and it was a big surprise to me when i got it which you know this year i got it as a christmas gift uh from my wife and at the back of the book are these wonderful you know vellum uh inserts that overlays that uh show uh harvey kurtzman's process on little annie fanny and it's just astounding they're really wonderful to look at and also wonderful just to to feel as art objects unto themselves the texture and the material the paper uh all really done with great care which uh to to you and and to john lind and to to uh, paul buell uh i have to take my hat off because it's a gorgeous book well i'm glad that um more than 10 years 10 years after it was published it's so showing up under some christmas trees right well you know and this is the funny thing too i don't think has this been reissued in paperback or uh no i uh i i wish it were you'll have to take that up with abrams Mm. Uh, they've uh they've certainly reprinted some other hardcovers i think the the sales were not you know, as great as they would hope. I mean, it did respectfully. I think they printed, as I recall, 15,000 and they've sold mm-hmm. most of them. Mm-hmm. And these days, that's a pretty good number, but apparently not good enough to reissue in paperback. But feel free to lobby. <laughs> I will. I will. So, um, actually, you know, one thing a little odd strikes me, and it's just a side note. I believe Dark Horse published the two volumes of Little Annie Fanny, if I'm not. That's right. Yeah, I put that together for them. Yeah. So, oh, you did. Okay. Those are those are fun collections, and they do g- allow you to see uh, Will Elder and Harvey Kurtzman working together at the, at the top of their visual game, if not yeah. uh, other things. But um, it's the, the whole book. The trajectory of the story is is both uh, of Harvey Kurtzman's story is, um, you know, it's it's one of great promise and and fulfillment and also great frustration, I think, um, that this guy who was really so uh, just so talented and multi-talented and and, you know, an extraordinary. I mean, he's a genius um, that he could not. It's almost like he just didn't fit into the requisite, you know, grid or holes, you know, that were uh, around time he he sort of was beyond that in a way after mad there was trump and there was help uh and some of of his other projects like jungle book and whatnot but um he really had a hard time finding a fit for his abilities and his his talent it's true i mean first of all he was without doubt ahead of his time and so um i mean you, you you talked about how there are still gatekeepers who don't get comics even now in the Mm -hmm. 20s so go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s and uh, he was definitely ahead of his time he also um you know ultimately was a satirist and satire is a tough thing to sell i think it was uh, george kaufman the playwright who said uh, satire is 
what closes on opening night. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the one remarkable exception was Mad. Yeah. And, uh, Mad uh, very quickly became a big hit and then a huge hit. And it's the one success that ironically, you know, Harvey walked away from, which is easy in hindsight for us to say, gosh, that was dumb. But at the time, you know, there were political factors at play that believe, believe mad. Um, and uh, nothing else he was involved with really had the degree of success, unless you count Annie Fanny, which he didn't own. Right. Um you know, which is another story. You don't get me started. You can't get started. But um, yeah, his life was a series largely of of commercial disappointments or uh, financially getting screwed or or just not being appreciated on a number of levels. And, uh, you know, at least late in his career, he got recognition. He got an award named after him and uh, you know, I think he, he died knowing he was appreciated, but it was too late and he never really achieved any financial success. Uh, mm-hmm. struggle. It's, it's, it's really a, a sad story in many ways. Yeah, he and he raised uh, three children, was it? Uh, how many children did he have? Three daughters and an autistic son. So yeah. Four. Yeah. Four children, and and uh, and he lived in Mount Vernon, which is not a an inexpensive place to live um, outside of New York. Um, and he was quite ill at the end of his life, if I understand. He had, he had Parkinson's. He developed Parkinson's disease, but then he also developed cancer, and it mm-hmm. was cancer that ultimately killed him. But but yeah, the last uh, at least decade or so of his career. He was impaired, and if you see some of as he was struggling to still make a living at it, it's tough to see some of the later work where his hand is unsteady and he's just unable to produce mm-hmm, mm-hmm. work of the caliber that he and we were accustomed to. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah he, he was beset from every side. Um. So there's there's a generous helping of art, and as we, as we said, some of it's very rare. Um, now, the access to this work, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have uh, almost like unfettered access to a lot of this stuff. Is that true? Well, Is the, represent- the family has made me the custodian of the archives mm-hmm. in the original art. And it's been slowly, the art has slowly been selling over the years, but the agency still has quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, pre- yes. So it was. It was not like you had to go scouring, you know. Uh, in some cases, in some cases, uh, we had to borrow pieces from uh, collectors like Glenn Bray and uh, a handful of others. But uh, yeah, for the most part, we had the essential work. Right there, right there. Yeah, and so um, actually, I'm just curious. You send it out to be photographed, or did you? Do you have a studio there that you photograph? Um. I was very nervous about that. Abrams, as you can imagine, you know, they're well, probably the best known art book publisher. And they wanted the absolute highest resolution scans. Sure. And um, so I 
ordinarily my wife or John will do scanning and it's perfectly adequate or, or even exceptional. But in this case, Charlie convinced me that the art should go to their printer in China who he spoke very highly of. And so with some trepidation, we sent it over there and they treated it very respectfully. They did the best possible scanning and we got it back. So there was no problem. But there's always that thought in the back of your head that, you know, is that the plane that falls in the Pacific or, or whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and all well that ends well. Right. And um, were was I, I'm not uh, aware if Harvey Kurtzman's wife, Adele, was living when the book came out or is she? Adele, Adele just passed away here. Oh. So she she lived to be in her mid 90s and wow. was quite a remarkable woman in her own right. Yeah, uh, it sounds like she had a very important role to play in his career. Uh, certainly back in the day at timely Marvel publications, she did. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story there. Absolutely. She was, in retrospect, pivotal. It's it's impossible to predict what would have happened to his career without her being there and manipulating events, as you know from reading the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's very possible you would not have heard of Harvey Kurtzman had it not been for her. Yeah, really. It, it, that is so, I, I mean, it seems impossible, really, to think that. But it's it really is, you know, uh, a real possibility. Yeah. because. Could we relate that story briefly for your listeners or make yes. them buy the book? <laughs> I think it will entice them to buy the book so if you want to tell the story please do well short version is adele right out of uh, she went to a college in upstate new york and uh, she uh, after she got out she was looking at the want ads and answered an ad for what they used to call a, a girl friday and kind of an executive assistant and she ended up working for stan lee somebody she had never heard of it was just a job for her but Stan gave her all kinds of assignments besides secretarial. And at one point uh, he had, um, you know, they didn't have a budget for real marketing surveys. So Stan and, uh, and his staff would rely on cheap tricks like having a contest for their readers where you'd win a, an entire dollar, you know, <laughs> if your name was picked out of a hat. But basically... He would ask the readers, what's your favorite feature of all the stuff we publish? And then he told Adele that when these uh, ballots and responses came in, she should count them and give him the tally. So after a couple of months or so of, uh, of the responses coming in, uh, she had been a big fan of Harvey's Hey Look and was secretly hoping that he would win or get a lot of votes. And it turns out um, he got... I forget if she said none or virtually none. And that so irritated her that she stuffed the ballot box to show that Harvey won. So when she showed the tally to Stan Lee, he said, oh, my God, we got to give that kid more work. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so that's how Harvey began doing more hay looks and how he came to the office more frequently. And he and Adele started flirting and the rest is history. It's uh, it's an incredible story, uh, and it's amazing. There, you know, there without the grace of Adele's inter interaction, there, 
who knows what history might have led to. Very Mad may never have existed, and EC may have gone out of business, and uh, Bill Gaines gone on to open up a flower shop or, or whatever it was that he wanted to do. I can't remember what he all, thought he might want to do. Yeah, all kinds of permutations <laughs> stem from that. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, though, we live in a time when elections are a hot issue and stuffing ballot boxes is not looked on kindly. Uh, but uh, nevertheless... Uh, we're glad it worked out in this case. Um, so, well, anyway, it's a great book and it, it really, really is. It's a wonderful introduction to, well, not introduction, but survey of Harvey Kurtzman's life and work. And, um, I, I think anybody who is interested in the, the life and work of this great, you know, great genius of comics should really check it out because it's a wonderful book i really enjoyed reading it um i i should give a shout out to you know it, it's a it's a graphic book and it certainly is a biography but i think it's about eighty thousand words uh, i should give a shout out to the late bill shelley who wrote a much much thicker i think you know it's about an inch and a half thick biography of harvey mm -hmm. that's yeah. probably, you know two or three times the verbiage so if you really want to know about Harvey, there's more than this book. Oh, that's great. Great. Wonderful. I'll have to look that up because uh, I, I'm not familiar with it, um, but I'm sure it's wonderful. Who, when it came to writing the text on a, on a project like this that's collaborative, how does that work? Um, do you do like a, a back uh, and forth? Or? Yeah, Paul and I spent a lot of time on the phone and in emails, and I think we would each take stabs at different chapters where we felt we had the... Uh, maybe the better insight or enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul, for example, was much more uh, of a historian with EC itself. So I know he probably started the EC chapter. And uh, where, where I had insights was just knowing Harvey personally for many years, hearing stories, anecdotes from him and Adele, so I could weave those in and out of the historical facts. And so we would just go back and forth. And if Paul would send a draft, I would add paragraphs to it, send it back to him. He'd tinker, I'd tinker until we were both happy with it. And then, uh, of course, at the end, then uh, our editor, Charlie, would uh, look it over, maybe nitpick further, ask us to elaborate on uh, some area or another, or maybe suggest that something was dead wood. So, you know, writing a book is. Uh, you know, an, an evolving uh, document that um, by the end uh, doesn't necessarily bear close resemblance to the original outline. But in this case, both Paul and I were enthused and uh, threw ourselves into it. And uh, mm -hmm. just even and, and picking the graphics and the, 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 there were so many other images Believe me, this I would have loved to have had a two volume uh, book. Sure, uh, it just wasn't commercially viable. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, it's uh, it, it's interesting. Um, fine in fine art, there there's the world of the catalog raisonné, right? Um, which was is yet which is yet to come to uh, comics. Um, right. The idea that very difficult project to do, but um, be kind At of some interesting. Point it'll happen to the Kurtzmans and Eisners and Crumbs, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, when you think about it, actually, uh, as the as you know, the collectability and the price of of the work goes up and it becomes more and more valuable and more and more rare, you know, that which is available 
to the to uh, the market is less and less. Um, things like those things will like catalog raisins will I'm sure will begin to uh, begin to happen. Right. Um, exhaustive, you know, detailed search or look into an artist's work, which is hard to fathom really because it could just I mean so much stuff and uh, um, but then not everybody keeps it and and we know a lot of uh, publishing companies prior to uh, say 19th. Seventy didn't didn't hold on to the artwork. So that's true. Um, in fact, in Harvey's case, there were some magnificent illustrations he did for pageant and other magazines, especially in the fifties. Esquire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vast majority of that, the whereabouts are unknown, and my biggest fear is they were destroyed. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's the tragedy of of you know the early years of the comic industry um is that so much great stuff or even incidental stuff that could be that adds to our knowledge of the history uh it just doesn't exist any longer and uh, uh we have to be thankful for those people who pulled the you know the the artwork out of the dustbins or the garbage bins um before it was shredded you know back in the day um you know it, it's interesting harvey kurtzman uh also enabled the careers or, or opened the door to careers for so many different people uh among them uh terry gilliam for example who wrote a nice little blurb i think in the back of the book and uh, uh gloria steinem famously enough um, did harvey kurtzman continue a relationship with gloria steinem as the years went on i mean i would think that would be an interesting one an interesting set of discussions given her role in the women's he, movement. He, he did, although it became complicated, as you can imagine, um, as Gloria became a more prominent feminist, and certainly as she was publishing and editing Ms. Magazine, uh, it, didn't, it, was not, um, it, it was not probably wise for her to be associated with the creator of Little Annie Fanny and so on. <laughs> But um, I know they continue to be friends. And when at Harvey's memorial service, Gloria was there and she gave a very glowing tribute to Harvey. So there is no question she respected him and loved him enough to come to his memorial and not be ashamed to be connected with him. That said, I tried several times over the years to get blurbs from her for various Uh books, and she always declined. At one point... uh, um, I even uh, I included a self-addressed stamped postcard just to say I want to make sure you know you got this letter, and uh, and uh, basically she sent it back with a single answer no to <laughs> the request. So I understand why it was politically dicey for her. Yeah, sure, um, sure. I know uh, Harvey and. Uh, and Adele certainly stayed in touch with Terry Gilliam as well over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry's several times written really wonderful tributes to Harvey and Harvey's influence on his own career. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, There's a documentary being done about Harvey's career right now by some Canadian filmmakers. They just filmed a, a Crumb. Uh, oh, yeah. A few weeks ago, and uh, apparently Crumb was brought to tears on. Uh, oh, on really? Video. So, so Harvey touched other creators in really profound ways, not just uh, in terms of 
professional example, but in terms of just being a good guy, yeah. got to know people who was a good friend, who was a supporter, who was a mentor, certainly can say it for myself. He was a profound influence on, on my own career and direction. Absolutely, sure. Kurtzman saw, and I think this was, it was unique at the time, you know, when he, he conceived of the magazine, he conceived of the comic book even as a vehicle for artistic expression. Uh, and that was kind of, a, that was a new concept, not just a commercial vehicle in which, you know, there happens to be some beautiful work being done. Um, instead, he saw it as a as a, a work of art unto itself. You know, the magazine, um, well, conceiving of a magazine was an art project in a way. And I think that that kind of um, underpins, you know, uh, the underground comics movement uh, in the late 60s. This, this idea that this is more than just ephemera. This is right. something else. Exactly. Or it's a vehicle for, for expression. Um, so, you know, and it really does seem that the, the really, I mean, terrific, there, there are a number of really terrific names in the history of comics who, who opened the door to younger people as well, who are very, um, they've got their eyes attuned, uh, to, to those artists and cartoons coming up and they're very generous to them. And I think, you know, Harvey Kurtzman is, is gotta be at the top of that list of people who have made it possible and always had an eye out for talent and were not jealous of talent, but were, you know, uh, sought to nurture it. Right. Yeah. So, um, now this is one of, of, I, I, I think you've done another biography of Al Cap. Was that, did that precede this book to work on Al Cap? Um, they came out about the same time. I think Cap might have been a year later, maybe 2010. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, so how did that process work? I haven't read that book yet. So, how, how did that process work in relationship to this one? Um, how did you conceive the the two projects? And <laughs> sure. Well, Cap is another guy who I've always been fascinated with, in a different way than say an Eisner or Kurtzman. I loved Little Abner growing up. I was fascinated with Cap as a, a personality in the media. He, most cartoonists, you know, kind of work in a, you know, a corner of their attic and <laughs> they seldom <laughs> see the light of day. But mm -hmm. Cap was out in the public. He was a TV star. He was a regular on Johnny Carson show and, you know, every talk show, he had his own radio show. He had his own TV show in the early 50s. He's the only cartoonist besides Walt Disney who had his own theme park. It goes on and on. So I was fascinated with him, even though I knew he had a dark side. Mm -hmm. And um, so in the back of my mind was always, yeah, I'm going to do a book about him someday. But, of course, it stalled. Um, a few years earlier, Michael Schumacher was writing a biography of Will Eisner, and so he visited me and interviewed me at length, and then the process of talking about Will, of course, we would get off on other tangents, and Al Cap inevitably came up, and as I started talking to him about Cap, who he didn't know a lot about at the time, he, you know, seemed to enjoy it and was curious and after he finished the Eisner book, he called me and he said, 
look, I've, I've been checking into Cap more and more, and he's a, he's a subject I'd like to tackle as a biographer. But he said, I don't want to step on your toes. You told me you were thinking about a book. So I'm calling you to, to make sure that's not a problem. So we talked about it, and we ended the conversation by saying, you know what, why don't we write it together? And so that's how that one came about. Okay. And so in dealing with Cap, now Cap, obviously, you didn't have the same kind of relationship with Al Cap, but you did know Al Cap, or you did interact with Al Cap at once. Well, that would be stretching it. Um, When I was at uh, Kitchen Sink Press, you may know I did a long-running reprint series of Little Abner. Yeah. But but prior to that, I mean, Cap had already died by the time I started that. But prior mm. to that, while Cap was still around, I was doing a, a humor anthology called Snarf. Right. One of, one of the things about Snarf I was trying to do was alternate covers by underground cartoonists and then guys I considered, you know, to be the creme de la creme of the previous generation. And so Eisner did a cover, Kurtzman did a cover, Will Elder did one. I had a promise from Carl Barks and Wally Wood that never came through. But I thought Al Cap would be a great one, too. And so I reached out to his office and his assistant set up a phone appointment. So I got to talk to Cap one time, and that's mm-hmm. the only direct contact I had. And basically... Uh, you know, uh, at that time, I was just trying to get him to do a cover. And uh, and he said, uh, got to remember that this is right after, <laughs> shortly after he had an incident. I'll put that in quotes, an incident in Wisconsin where he was uh, accused by a co-ed of, of, of being sexually attacked. Mm-hmm. And so right away, getting a call from an underground comics publisher in Wisconsin already had his spider sense tingling. But he took the call and he said, so what exactly do you want from me? And I said, I'd like you to do a guest cover for an underground comic. And he said, well, why would I want to do that? And I said, well, keep in mind that we have total freedom of expression here. And I said, I just admire you as an artist. I'd like to have you join some others you I know you know, like Eisner and Kurtzman. And I said, uh, you can do whatever you want. I said, I know you don't, you're not fond of hippies. If you want to use this opportunity to spit in their eyes, that's fine with me. I'll publish it. And he <laughs> laughed and he said, well, that sounds pretty appealing. How much does it pay? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a guy who is getting as much as $10,000 to speak on campuses, right? Yeah. And my budget for cover then was, I think, a couple hundred dollars, but I doubled it for him. And that didn't impress him at all. (laughs) And he said, well, let me think about it. And the rest of the conversation, you know, was was not substantive. And that was the end of it. And I kicked myself a thousand times since for not doing the logical next step, which is to not talk about money. I couldn't lure him with money. But the thing he was particular genius at was getting publicity yeah at this point in his career he was getting mostly bad press what i should have said is if you do a cover for an underground comic it'll be great publicity for both of us yeah and i didn't and so i lost that opportunity oh man that's great it's it's actually interesting to hear you say that because um uh, I, I get a window into your, 
your your capability your marketing strategies and your your vision for marketing which is uh, actually well regarded by by most i mean you well, were you were known for being able to attract publicity when you, when you have no money you yeah. have to be clever <laughs> and uh, what was helpful for me uh, i didn't go to art school and there were no cartooning schools when i was right. of that age and so i majored in journalism and one big advantage that gave me is I knew how journalists think. And so when I would reach out to journalists through, you know, calls or press releases or whatever, I felt I had an advantage that in many ways I could, uh, I don't want to say manipulate, but I could, uh, I could, uh, I could make them think it was their idea to do this story and then just kind of feed them what they needed for a story that I already could see. Yeah. And a lot of times journalists are lazy or it's a slow news day or whatever. And uh, and so that's helpful. But people who weren't trained as journalists, they don't necessarily even think that way. They don't think that must have slow news days. <laughs> Or, or, or can be given the, the spark of an idea to run with and so on. So, so yeah, you know, Kitchen Sing never really had any money to speak of. And so getting publicity was, uh, was one way of, uh, of getting advertising without money. Yeah, and, uh, and certainly uh, you knew how to do it. And uh, it's kind of cool to, to think about. I mean, it's an interesting moment. We live in now where it seems like the news you know is entirely controlled at least particularly the last four years by one person in a, a twitter account and uh it seemed as though it was quite calculated you know to outrage and uh to shock and uh keep the name in the news uh and uh you know it's it certainly is a strategy um one which i never never understood but uh nevertheless it's it's really impressive um so al cap was not a pleasant guy and his story is filled with all kinds of dark things and how did you deal with that in the book we uh, tried to tell it warts and all mm-hmm. um i i um uh, i had of course uh a slight conflict to begin with, which was I represented the Cap estate as an agent. Okay. So I had to go to the family and tell them that um, separately, personally, I was collaborating on this biography. And at first they were very pleased to hear that. But I did warn them that it would be a warts and all book. And um, the daughter, the surviving daughter, described herself as Al Cap's biggest fan. And in a weird way, uh, and in an unexpected way, I learned that she really wasn't that well informed about her father's dark side. She had pretty much ignored the headlines and the bad news and didn't really believe any what she thought were rumors. Mm -hmm. So when she actually finally got the manuscript for review, she was kind of mortified. She learned mm. a lot about her dad she did not know. Yeah. And at that point, um, suffice to say, she was not happy. And uh, at the same time, I needed the family's permission to include copyrighted images in the book. Yeah. 
So we had a, a, an impasse for a while. I won't go into the details of how we resolved it, but uh, um, ultimately, I think Michael and I got what we wanted, and uh, uh, yeah, the the. We we didn't try to skirt any of the, the the details about Cap's dark side. What we did do was we pledged that we would only recount incidents where there were actual charges, actual affidavits, actual people with names. We did not rely on any innuendo, rumor, or incidents that we know happened, but where there were no legal results from them. So in other words, my personal belief is what we showed in the book was the tip of the iceberg. Okay. And we could allude to a larger iceberg below the surface. Mm -hmm. but we didn't go yeah. in, we didn't we didn't list all the things we could have. Let's just leave it that way. Sure. And, uh, you know, no one will ever know because now virtually everyone is dead from that time and yeah. uh, you know I, it's interesting. Uh, I did see something. Go, Goldie Hawn actually wrote something not too long ago. Yeah, uh, he's one of the one of the public figures who went public with her story. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, of course, she wasn't the famous Goldie Hawn. She was just an unemployed dancer. Right. That uh, was walking in the streets of New York when Cap Cap used to employ a, a fellow, maybe more than one, who would look for girls oh my god type. and uh so this intermediary uh just saw this attractive young blonde and basically said uh, hey you interested in uh, being in the little abner musical and she said why gosh yes i'm a dancer you know and uh-huh yeah yeah and of course yeah. then uh <clears throat> once she was lured up to his apartment then of course it had nothing to do with an audition right right which happened all too often as we know yeah. In that and, it, and it's disgusting it really is at the yep. same time in my own mind i had to try to separate as much as possible that the guy was a genius cartoonist who entertained you know tens of millions of people every day for decades right and it was an important and early influence on me and so we we wanted to balance that you know it's kind of like modern example maybe a woody allen you know like yeah you, you admire his movies but you know you and in well and in woody's case it's 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 a lot of allegations and not necessarily what the court would call real evidence but the point is you got somebody famous who you admire their work mm -hmm. yet personally you have grave misgivings some people just boycott the work you know i sure. know people who say i'll never watch another woody allen movie Sure. I'm not like that. I can still enjoy Annie Hall. With Cap, it's the same thing. I still appreciate Little Abner while I find his personal behavior repulsive. Yeah. And it's not even as simple as that, because in many ways he was surprisingly liberal and progressive and generous in ways where you want to dislike him. You have to look at the evidence and go, well, you know, that's completely different from this other stuff. And it just... I guess you have to say this about almost everybody. They're they're complicated. <laughs> and writing a biography is sorting through those complications. But, you know, one of the things about Al Cap that has I, I, always been a mystery to me, and that's how much of the artwork did he or did he actually do 
uh, over the years um, because he's known for having some of the greatest assistants, uh, you know, in the history of assistants, obviously, Frank uh, Frazetta, among others. Um, so did, was, were there clues to, you know, his contribution to the work over time? Sure. Um, there, there is, and part of it is from originals in his own archives and a uh, number of examples over the years. I can tell you that Cap himself was a terrific cartoonist, mm-hmm. but was pulled in so many directions because he was an entrepreneur who couldn't resist, you know, being a, a frequent guest on TV shows or giving campus tours or being involved in merchandising and so on and so on. So by necessity, he employed uh, assistants. At any given time, he had at least three, sometimes four, and uh, sometimes part-timers beyond that. But Mm -hmm. he wrote the strips, he laid out the strips, and he generally inked the heads and sometimes the bodies. And um, there were certain things that he... From the beginning, if you look at the genesis of the strip in 1934, his wife, Catherine, actually helped with the backgrounds before he could afford an assistant. But as soon as he could afford it, within the first year, he hired Mo Leff to help him. And then Mo Leff was stolen by Ham Fisher as part of their long running. Yeah. And then he was smart enough to realize that if he wanted to keep good assistance, he had to compensate them well and so he paid his assistants i think more generously than any other cartoonist of his era mm. and so when he got andy amato and walter johnston starting in i think 1937 well into the 60s they never left him it was an unusually long relationship and he not only gave them very good salaries he took 10% of his merchandising and licensing revenue and divided it with them. Wow. So they had they they basically were shareholders in the Cap Corporation. And so they never complained. He also uh, involved them in the creative process. They would have brainstorming sessions constantly, and all of them could throw in their ideas, their gags, whatever. And they were welcomed. Uh, Captain have the kind of ego that said, I alone am writing this strip. He had the last word. He generally had the genesis of the idea and the plot, but then he involved them. And mm-hmm. if any of them had a better idea, he was the first to accept it. So in that sense, the workplace was, uh, I would say, healthier and um, more, I don't want to say socialistic, but uh, a more of a profit sharing situation than I'm aware of in any other studio. Uh, it's really interesting um, to to think about. Actually, it's kind of, it kind of goes as we're just talking about. It kind of goes flies in the face of his his uh, public persona. Um, you know, uh, and it, and it is interesting because uh, well, I mean, one of the things Little Abner is is so complicated, um, both in terms of story, but also in terms of artwork, and there's so much detail uh, and beautifully drawn detail throughout the strip. Um, to do it on a daily basis, I'm not sure, you know, unless you've actually tried to do it, um, the daily 
the the grind that's involved in trying to produce a strip like that it's just impossible for somebody to do it all by themselves uh it's i don't know anybody who who worked at the level that cap was working um in terms of the you know the the graphic detail anyway in the strip who could do it by themselves um there's just so much that goes into it um so so did cap did little abner end before cap passed away no, Cap retired in 1977 and lived uh, two more years. Um, he was largely disgraced at the time mm-hmm. he retired, but he also was in declining health. He was a lifelong chain smoker, so he developed emphysema and other complications. He was what we call now a doctor shopper who uh, mm-hmm. was often taking multiple prescriptions at the same time and developed lupus because he was over-medicated. Did a a lot of kind of dumb things toward the end of his life. He was probably clinically depressed because here was a guy who was on the top of the world, Mm -hmm. uh, an admired celebrity, and then in the last 10 years or so of his life, he was largely reviled by the press when he had been a press darling. Yeah. And so it had to be depressing for his ego to accept that he was no longer loved and was, in fact, hated in many circles. And the strip stopped being funny by his own admission. Um, Mm -hmm. An interview later on, he admitted uh, that strip hadn't been funny for years. It got too political. It got, uh, you know, he was attacking hippies and war protesters and 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 it just became one dimensional there was no subtlety to the satire his best assistants left and so he took on in my view weaker assistants so the strip didn't even have that distinctive look anymore um to me it's painful to watch the the last years of little abner particularly the 1970s um mm-hmm. it's just a shadow of itself he was once the headlines about the sexual impeccadillos or whatever you want to call them started uh, being public, papers used that as an excuse to drop them. And and I say excuse because a lot of them were already unhappy with his increasingly right-wing politics, but it was still fairly popular. But once he got the bad headlines, they could say, oh, okay, that's why we're dropping you. It's not political. So um, I can't remember the exact numbers offhand, but he went from being in somewhere, you know, close to around a thousand newspapers, plummeted to around 400 or so, which is still a very respectable number, but it was way, way less than he was accustomed. And that also meant his revenue dropped precipitously. And, you know, he, he made a lot of money over the years, so it's not like he was starving, but it still was a combination then of, of deflated ego, uh, deflated revenue, <laughs> of mm-hmm. self-recognition of an inferior, inferior product. And, yeah. You know, a number of of venerable strips by the 1970s 
it kind of fallen out of favor because of whether whether it's just because of you know uh, the kind of natural evolution of things, or or whether it's because politically you know certain mindsets uh, from the World War II era were just kind of um, uh, out of sync with with the '60s and '70s. I'm thinking of like uh, Milton Kniff and Steve Canyon. Right, that's a perfect example. Yeah, you know. Uh, it, it was just the kind of thing that there was a kind of ossification of certain ideas. Uh, and you can't help but reflect the period of time that you you were uh, formed in, you know. And so, uh, you know, uh, in the case of somebody like Milton Kniff, uh, I, I certainly think, you, I mean, the, he, Terry and the Pirates was the World War II adventure strip. And um, uh, how do you walk away from the attitudes that, you know, were so well um embedded in that strip you know i don't think that that's if they were sincere and they certainly seem to be i mean in kniff's case remember he had the opportunity in 1947 to walk away from terry that was owned by the syndicate yeah because he could then own the copyright to his new strip and so it's admirable and and I, i always love it when any cartoonist owns their own work especially sure. in the syndicated world where that was very rare at the time. Mm-hmm. But as you say, his uh, his worldview was shaped by the military. He had close friends in the military. He, he had a very conservative political philosophy, and that's fine. That's his business. But he alienated um, what could have been a much larger audience. I think the audience that even today people of any political stripe can probably read Terry and the Pirates as an adventure and Mm -hmm. as an adventure, whereas it's much more difficult for anyone, I think, to jump into Steve Canyon and have the same satisfying sense of adventure because it's, I don't know, it just, I, I mean, I count myself among that generation and keep in mind, I published Steve Canyon magazine and books 26 or so volumes yeah i did that mainly because one of my employees pete poplaski loved milton kniff and he totally edited and he totally designed it and i was simply the publisher and kind of was hands off and i respected kniff enough and pete to feel comfortable publishing it but it's it's one of the publications i can tell you that with a handful of exceptions, I never read. Oh, wow. It's so. interesting. I, you know, I've been, re- I, it's Steve Canyon is one of those things that I've read Terry and the Pirates and exactly as you said, I, I read it as a great adventure story and, and a great World War II adventure story, but I've been very uh, slow to warm to Steve Canyon. I've never yeah. really... Uh, it's not hit me in the same way. Uh, I also think Milt should have taken a lesson from Ted Williams and stepped down at the peak of his career. He's, I think he loved working so much. He worked right to the end in the last few years. Again, it just, the quality just deteriorated so much. It was hard to look at. Yeah. And, uh, and that was even with an assistant, you know, uh, uh, Dick Rockwell, I believe. But, to me, it's just, it just sad to watch that. It's sad to watch anyone who just stays on too long. Yeah, and yeah. 
But, you know, he loved doing it, and that's all he knew, and he was a workaholic. Now, did you have contact with Milton Kniff? I talked to him on the phone a few times, and I corresponded with him a bit. But, um, no, Pete Poplaski is the one who, okay. you know, 90% or so of the contact. And Pete would visit him at the New York studio. Really? <clears throat> interview him at length. <clears throat> because Pete wrote all the introductory material. Okay. And wanted to hear, you know, all the stories and anecdotes from Milt, who was an entertaining guy. Um, and I generally read those. Those were interesting, a yeah. lot more interesting to me than the strips themselves. Well, you know, yeah, certainly the stories you could you could tell. Now, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you talk about Pete Poplaski. Um, now, he is kind of um, he's a cartoonist cartoonist, if if I'm not mistaken. And he's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. He's one of those guys who you you don't hear the name among the titans over and over again, but among cartoonists, Pete Poplaski is known as really one of the best in in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about you know your relationship with him, um, how he came to work for you, and and some of what he he did for you aside from Steve Canyon. Yeah, um, I first learned about Pete very near the beginning of Kitchen Sink, when uh, it might have been the second year or so, uh, one of my roommates uh, took a job as a, a, a book salesman. And uh, was I was in Milwaukee at the time, and my roommate Bill was uh, going to bookstores in Green Bay, and he saw the student paper from UW-Green Bay with cartoons by this kid named Pete Poplaski. So he he brought back some samples to show me, and I was impressed enough that uh, I sent a letter, um, which Pete got and responded to. And so he came down to visit me. And at, at that time, I mean, Pete's always been, uh, I guess I'll use the, the term straight in terms of uh, I was a long-haired uh, hippie. He was straight. He didn't smoke pot, and he was... Uh, not attired the same way um, most of my generation was. Uh -huh. Pete walked into my studio apartment and uh, described it as the, the, the smoke wafting out. And uh, he stepped into, an, a, a, to him, a very new world. But at the same time, it was exciting to him because he loved comics and there was no opportunity in Green Bay mm. for him to do comics. And so he dropped out of college to his parents' great dismay and started working for me, <laughs> and um, I, I needed someone on staff who could design and uh, do a variety of artistic things, but Pete also was, at the same time, a contributor, and one of the reasons, as you said, that a lot of people don't know about him is he's he so multi-talented as a designer, a colorist, a cartoonist, and uh, what most people, even in comics, don't know, he's a terrific painter, and yeah. so... You know, like even these days, he's, he lives in France uh, half the year. He literally is Robert Crumb's neighbor. Oh, wow. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah, and, and Pete uh, spends most of his time, he'll be outside with an easel set up, uh, painting a landscape or a portrait or a still life. And uh, he sells those to tourists. And so comics are a part of his life, but they're not the primary. And he's one of the rare, rare artists 
who is highly accomplished in the very diverse diverse worlds of oil painting and cartooning. Mm-hmm. And he can he can make a living at both. Um, he's also, uh, in my experience, the the top chameleon in terms of he can mimic other artist styles uh, in a remarkable way, which is why he's often hired to do covers for compilations of DC uh, characters like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and he can draw those characters in the style of the artist most famous for the character during the time being reprinted. So you can see IDW recently has put out a series of Superman books. The covers are all by Pete. Oh my God. At first glance, you might think, well, that's got to be Wayne Boring or, you know, somebody like that. He can mimic Bob Kane or Dick Sprang or go down the list. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> if, if he didn't sign his own name in small letters, you you literally wouldn't know. Um, but uh, is it true that he paints in the in Montmartre uh, dressed in a like Zorro outfit or huh. something? <laughs> well, not all the time, but he he is he is known to yes, he is fascinated with Zorro. He's the world's foremost expert on Zorro. Really, he's been working for twenty or some years on the definitive Zorro book. At the moment, he's organizing an exhibit in uh, that will be in Lucerne, Switzerland, in April. That is devoted to uh, the evolution of the hero, with the focus being on Zorro. And it's a quite substantial exhibit if you're in Switzerland uh, in April. Um, but yes, he he often will, he's an expert fencer, and really? he has a Zorro costume. And he has been known to appear on the streets of the small French village in full costume painting. And while it sounds crazy to some people, uh, to me, it's crazy like a fox because it attracts tourists. If you are a tourist walking through this provincial village and you see Zorro painting, <laughs> you you have to get closer. You have to you have to. Uh, <laughs> you have to figure out what's going on. And if you get close enough to look at his paintings and you speak English, he will engage you. Pete's an amazing talker. He will uh, talk your head off. And uh, this tourist who stops will be invited to a studio. And, you know, a reasonable percentage of the time, they'll walk away buying a painting from him. So it's, it's it's true and yet it's not as crazy as maybe it sounds on the surface i I will also add that some years back god this has got to be a decade or more ago arts beagleman and his wife and children went on a on a vacation to europe they traveled all over europe and they stopped and they visited uh, the crumbs who are old friends and they met pete and so when they got back to new york art said to his son so what did you enjoy most about our trip? And his son said, I got to meet Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, my God. I love it. Hey, listeners. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial-free, but free to the listening public. 
and in exchange you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again. And that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. It's really great. Well, it indeed, that's a great, you know, it sounds like more than a gimmick, I have to say. And uh, it sounds like a passion but it's wonderful that, that uh, it works well as a as a, a grabber for people who are walking around looking to engage with artists i mean how wonderful is that it's hilarious wonderful uh so yeah so it's a long a long running uh relationship um he did a lot of different things as you said for you he designed books and he he did uh, logos and as well as uh um packaging as you said on the steve canyon books and editing even and it's amazing how many talents he had um well you know the last time we were talking we really got we 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 talked just until the early 70s and we hadn't really talked about the history of kitchen sink uh pro after say 1972 or so and i and i i'm not sure if i recall or not if we actually talked about what happened when the supreme court ruled made that famous obscenity ruling but it seems to me that that happened just in a moment when underground comics were really exploding and could have you know without that ruling could have really continued to be as viable and and prolific as they were then of course that's not what happened um so around that time you know uh was that something that i mean were you aware when that ruling came down well was it yeah it was unavoidable because <clears throat> you know it was probably making front page newspaper news i the case i believe miller versus california mm -hmm. we um you know the supreme court for a long time didn't know what to do about obscenity um i think it was judge brennan who famously said i i can't define it but i know it when i see it <laughs> which, <laughs> which is not helpful because every individual could say the same thing right yeah but what they did in 1973 was they threw it back into local hands and they said local communities can determine what is obscene and illegal and that just you know, really wasn't the ideal solution. And what happened was underground comics put in the context of the majority of our distribution was through head shops. Yes. Shops were, you know, some of your listeners may not know, uh, shops that would sell drug paraphernalia like rolling papers and bongs and so forth, along with psychedelic posters. And most of them had racks or walls full of underground comics. And so if you owned a head shop, you were already under probably the scrutiny of local authorities because it's, you know, it's the kind of shop that respectable people probably don't want, you know, in their backyard. So given that, um, if suddenly the comics can be ruled obscene, if the local, you know, Mm -hmm. Council or mayor, whoever determines that the, the, an ordinance will will be in place and you will be put out of business because you're carrying a zap or a crumb title or a bizarre sex or whatever it is, you're probably going to 
do the prudent thing and stop carrying undergrounds. And that's what happened in many cases, especially in, let's say, the Bible Belt or conservative areas where they were already uh, Mm -hmm. feeling that they're, you know, uh, their being in business was 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 uh, was was being scrutinized. Yeah, and um, so that had a debilitating effect for sure. But at the same time, we had um, what uh, can best be described as a, a product glut, and I use that term because the undergrounds uh, revolutionized uh, underground under uh, revolutionized this distribution system that was different than newsstands in that we sold on a non-returnable basis. If, if you if you were, you know, a shop that carried uh, Marvel and DC and Archie, somebody would come in, you know, regularly and replace last month's or last week's comics with new ones. But if we sold our undergrounds to your shop, they were yours, period. You're not returning them. The motive for that was we gave you a much deeper discount. Mm-hmm. And so that was a worthy trade-off. But the problem is always, there's always retailers who are paying close attention and those who are just buying widgets. And if you were just buying widgets, you would not say, I want uh, 25 of the new Crumb title and five of the new Joe Blow title. You would say, give me a dozen of each. Yeah. And so the crumb or the popular title would sell out quickly. The one by Joe Blow might not sell well at all. And so go, you know, three months, six months, a year later, you might have a lot of Joe Blow titles on your rack. You're stuck with them. Yeah. And so combination of the the laws redefining obscenity in local terms and that non-returnable system that some retailers couldn't quite cope with uh that combination we call the crash of 73 which, yeah yeah uh, which was uh, a bad year for the all the comics publishers and artists up until then from the late 60s right through early or mid 73 i forget when the the supreme court case came out but we had several years of really strong growth and in 73, that, that did a reverse. And for the first time, we saw reduced revenue and um, reduced orders and a lot of cancellations of shops that had standing orders or who had been regular customers. It wasn't quite a death blow, but it was a sobering blow. Mm-hmm. The one that on my personal level uh, forced me in a way to take up Stan Lee on his offer that I had been ignoring for a year or two. Right, which is to come, uh, it, it will not come to New York, but just to work for him on the anthology comics book, uh, as I recall, right? That was what, That's what came out of it. Um, at the time, we didn't know what it would be. He wanted me to join the bullpen and, yeah. and be an editor, which did not hold appeal to me on a number of levels. I didn't want to move to New York. I uh, I wasn't eager to work for the man, you know. Mm-hmm. I, but I admired Stan and what he had done with Marvel, and uh, so I had mixed feelings. Um, and so the compromise, he flew me out so we could talk about it. 
and you know he was a very persuasive fellow but at the same time i dug in my heels about certain things and we ended up compromising in a way that probably neither of us could have predicted and um Part of the compromise was I could stay in Wisconsin, but get a New York salary, mm-hmm. uh, which is great because the cost of living <laughs> yeah. where I was was a lot lower. And um, I explained to him that the artists I worked with were accustomed to owning their own copyrights, keeping their original art and so on, which, of course, was not the way any major comics publisher did it. And, and that's sort of, oh, I'm sorry. You know, so we had to we had to work around all of those things, and, uh, uh, and it was it was that deal that um, with returning the artwork, the, and the artists owning their own stuff, that resulted in pulling the plug on that book at Marvel. Ultimately, yes, I think. Keep for the full context. Remember that uh, that uh, the owner of uh, of Marvel was a guy named Goodman who. Martin Goodman, who um, wanted to retire. I believe he retired in Florida. And Stan was his, uh, I think, nephew by marriage. And Stan had been with him since the early 40s. And he put Stan in charge as the publisher. Stan was a great creative guy, but he was totally green as a publisher, making publisher decisions. So in a sense, I got him at exactly the best time when he was not really... Um, thinking big picture, mm-hmm. he was so he was eager to to do a deal for a lot of complicated reasons. Uh, I, I knew that Stan, just like just like Al Cap was, he was he was touring uh, campuses. He was popular. He was giving talks, and uh, Marvel was getting written up in places like Esquire magazine, and uh, newspapers were touting, you know, the this whole new generation of Marvel comics changing the industry. And so uh, at that time, I think Stan was, had to be in his forties and he's speaking to students who are, you know, 18 to 22. And I think he wanted to show them that he was what I call hip and with it. Mm -hmm. He made a deal with underground cartoonists. His street cred was stronger with college students. Yeah. So he was eager to do something with me. And Martin Goodman would never have done this deal with me. Martin Goodman would not have invited me to New York or paid my airfare. Sure. Um, but Stan made a business decision that probably was unwise in terms of Marvel's best interests. So by allowing the artists to keep their copyright and keep their original art and also to be able to use curse words and some degree of nudity, these were all breaking the rules. And uh, so when Comics Book came out, I had three issues had been published and two more were in the can when he called me to tell me ostensibly the numbers weren't looking good. I'm not convinced of that i was never shown numbers what i did learn later was that other insiders were expressing their unhappiness that he was giving a special deal to quote these hippies and not giving the same courtesies to you know long-term employees i mean 
in other words, why was why was Marvel still keeping Jack Kirby's artwork but returning mine or Trina Robbins or you know mm-hmm. that that's not a cohesive company policy. With regard to copyrights, uh, Stan rationalized that we weren't doing you know Spider-Man or, or or Fantastic Four. They weren't company properties, so he rationalized that. Sure, we could own our copyright. He didn't particularly care. But symbolically, it certainly was important to other people who worked there, especially ones who might have come to Marvel with a fresh idea and said, hey, I got this superhero. It's my idea. I want to own it or I want to own a piece of it. It just it 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 opened what I call a Pandora's box that he just couldn't shut again. Yeah. Yeah. and the easiest thing was just to to let it go. Sure. Uh, and and so after a couple of years, uh, that relationship, or after a year or so, that relationship sort of ended. And and you published a couple of issues of comics book uh, on on your own under the under the kitchen sink imprint. Right. But after that, and, and I'm, I guess that sort of helped you stay afloat for a while. But after that, kitchen sink continues to flourish. Um, so how did you and dig yourself out from, you know, the, the devastation of 73 and 74 after comics book ended, um, because kitchen sink goes on to thrive and, um, publish, continue publishing. Well, part of it was, uh, again, I don't, I don't want to ever imply to your listeners that this was a, a big enterprise, but on a small scale, it's still diversified and we had, what is probably best represented by um, our company trademark was an octopus. And I drew an octopus who was smoking a cigar and had a, was wearing a derby with a dollar sign on it. And each arm held a so-called division of the company. So there were, I think, eight tentacles and eight divisions. And so while publishing may have hit a setback for a while, uh, my partner and I owned a head shop in Milwaukee. We had a commercial art studio. We actually, you know, had a technically an, a, a recording arm because we had done Crumb's 78 RPM record. We had um, a mail order business called Krupp Mail Order, mm-hmm. and we had a distribution business. None of these were huge by any means, but collectively, um, it, it meant that if one or two arms were suffering, the other arms kept it afloat. And um, so that's the simplest explanation. Well, and, and I think Stan Lee, when he saw you, he, he must have gathered that among, you know, your generation, among the underground cartoonists and even the underground publishers, you seem to be the one with the keenest business sense, the, the one who seemed to be the most... I would think, um, from his point of view, uh, the the one to bet on, actually. <laughs> well, I, 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 I can't really say. I don't know that Stan concluded that or not. Um, <laughs> well, look, I would think but, but I, it's certainly, I, I can certainly say of my generation of underground cartoonists, virtually no one had any interest in the business side. Um, it's one of the reasons I think Will Eisner and I got along so well was I he understood, like I did, that the the business in many ways was as creative and exciting as the creative side, but it took a certain mindset to appreciate it. <clears throat> and neither he nor I had any 
training or schooling in in business. It just came naturally. And so other cartoonists were dependent on a publisher taking care of the details. And since I was able to do that, I did do that. And I don't think I complained too much about it. But at the same time, I partly resented that I couldn't be a full-time cartoonist myself. That was an ongoing struggle that to this day I still, you know, fret about because I'm still entangled in many ways and would prefer to just be an artist. Sure. But, um, uh, you know, when I look back at the 70s, when uh, I was certainly pretty young and in many respects dumber, or I should say maybe more naive about the world at large, I made a lot of decisions um, rather impulsively and by the gut without thinking long term. Um, <clears throat> Marvel to me was always kind of a short term thing that was going to get me through that crash of 73. Um, when Stan um, basically called to tell me he was dropping comics book, he didn't fire me. He said, I'd like you to edit Crazy Magazine. Uh, and so he was perfectly willing to keep me on staff and I could even stay in Wisconsin. And I briefly entertained it. And I remember the conversation very well. Um, I had seen crazy and I said to him, um, I said, well, it's it's kind of a mad imitation. I said, if I was going to take it on, I'd want to, you know, make it a lot fresher, give it its, its, its own brand of humor and not make it an imitator. And and he immediately jumped to that and he said, whoa. He said, whoa, he said, he said, it's an imitator of mad because uh, he said we have 10 percent of the circulation of mad. But he said that's enough to make some some significant money. He said, we don't pretend to be mad, but but we'll take that 10 percent of the market. He uh -huh. said, I don't want you messing with that formula. And I and I remember making then a very quick decision. And I said, look, Stan, I don't want to just be a hired hand who's grinding out these magazines for you. I, my own operation, I can do whatever I want. If I'm working for you, I can't do whatever I want. So I'm I'm sorry, I, I, I can't take it. So it ended on friendly terms, but that was another crossroad in my life. I could have joined the bullpen. I could have become, you know, I don't know, yeah. Roy Thomas or something. I. It didn't appeal to me. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I I that's a little tidbit I'd never heard before that he offered you that that opportunity. It's really fascinating and interesting and revealing that you didn't take it. But also, it's interesting to hear what how he Im imagined the title and clearly as a businessman, he said, "Wow, that's we want it to be an imitation." That's <laughs> really something. Oh, I know, um, but so I guess. He, because I had every issue of comics book came in um, on time, on budget. And so I, I was reliable even when I wasn't under his nose. Mm -hmm. And I know he was skeptical when I said, I can do this from Wisconsin and, you know, it, you, you'll have everything in time. So I had proven that. And so it, on one level, it would have been nice to stay in my, you know, low rent area and draw a New York salary and whatever. Um and had I been older and maybe, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, more nervous about the future, maybe if I I had a more a worrisome mortgage or more crying children, I mean, who knows? But 
I, I was so free enough at that moment to say, you know, screw it. Well, you know, so the 70s weren't a great time economically for comics. Um, I'm, I'm not sure economically when there's been a really great time for comics. But um, but still, you came up with some great titles uh, during that period of time um, that I think made were, were quite significant. So, I mean, significant in terms of the history of comics. I'm thinking of Howard Cruz now. And gay comics, uh, which had never existed before, and boy, that was quite a, a brave thing to do uh, to take on, you know, comics that really uh, had never been seen, you know, on that level before, that that publicly, I think, before. Um, uh, what, so, talk about that a little bit, you know, how that came about. Sure. Well, to be fair, there had been a couple of one shots. Uh, uh, on gay topics, but there was no uh, ongoing forum, and I—I uh, I, I was a big admirer of Howard's uh, talent, and I, I came to learn he was gay through his work. It's not something you know that ever came up in a conversation. At that point, I, I'm not sure I had even met Howard because he lived in uh, in Alabama when I started publishing and made me move to New York and I was in Wisconsin. But um, when I realized he was uh, a gay artist and this idea had been percolating in the back of my head that there ought to be uh, an anthology. And so I just, I, I, I told him that and I, and I said, uh, would you consider editing it? And his first reaction was uh, that he thought it would be great that, if that happened, but he was at that time a freelance illustrator. And at that point in time, it was still quite dangerous to come out of the closet. And he was afraid it would uh, jeopardize his career as a freelancer. And uh, so he said he needed to think about it. And uh, offhand, I can't remember how long. I don't think it was too long before he came back to me and he said, I've decided it needs to be done and, 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 and I'll do it. And he, he said, but but I don't know any other gay cartoonists. He said, do you? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at that point, um, I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I said, why don't we write a form letter and I'll send it to every artist in my Rolodex because um, there must be others like you who are not public about, you know, their their gender preferences here, but I'm willing to send it to everybody. And so we did that. And, um, and, it, and it worked. Um, six or seven or eight, as I recall, uh, who were gay or bisexual responded. And then in some cases, they knew others. And so Howard had suddenly a pool of talent to, to draw from. And once the first issue came out, it was a magnet. And of course, then all kinds of unsolicited work came from from uh, from gay cartoonists. Sure, because but at the same time, I mean, I remember I, this is very funny because um, uh, it, it seemed funny at the time. I, I sent that form letter to everybody, <laughs> <laughs> and I got a phone call from S. Clay Wilson, who was probably you know pretty thin-skinned in general and mm -hmm. and he was deeply offended that i would even think there was a one percent chance he might be gay 
And so he just let me have it over the phone. And I had to hold, a, you know, the phone a foot from my ear and let him have his say and just say, look, uh, Wilson, I'm, I'm sorry you're upset, but my feeling was I had to send it to everybody. And uh, so, you know. Did he get, did he calm down? <laughs> uh, well, to the degree of Wilson ever calmed down, you know, he's a volatile character. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there were some others, too, who just crumpled it up and threw it in the wastebasket and didn't bother to call me. But who knew? You know, who knew? It's yeah. like the first cover of Gay Comics was done by Rand Holmes. I never would have guessed, you know, Rand might be bisexual. Um, there were a number of surprises. And it, it ultimately it doesn't matter. It's just when you play that guessing game. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're you're guessing. And, sure. and, and, and you're you're going to guess wrong. Well, and, it, you know, it certainly was. I mean, I think now looking back now, if you, if you didn't live through those, those those periods of time, which were more conservative and really uh, more repressive in regard to sexuality, um, you know, I think it's hard to imagine the, or to understand or appreciate, you know, what it took for you to reach out in a serious fashion and and pull your you know your group of artists um and ask them just even asking somebody uh was a brave thing to do and, and not an easy thing to do um well maybe i don't know i i i don't know all i know is we did it and i'm, I'm glad and i'm and i'm proud of it and, so uh, what was the response uh obviously because it lasted several issues a number of issues right um, it, it, what was the response, both economically, but also in terms of of the public perception? It found an audience, um, clearly. Well, again, it, it, there's not a simple answer. First of all, um, I think the first issue came out shortly before it was maybe 1980. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. There was uh, the Sh Chicago Comic Convention was one that was close to me. I always drove had a big backdrop and several tables. And um, it was one of the rare opportunities where I would be behind a table and it was my kind of informal marketing survey because actually I could talk to customers firsthand. And I remember we always had, of course, all the new products laid out on the tables and we'd put the underground comics in one section, graphic novels and another and so on. And I remember being fascinated during that long weekend because um, in, in 1980, the vast majority, well into the 90 percentile range, is male customers, right? Yeah. If the girl was there, she was probably a girlfriend dragged along. Yeah. Uh, so I would watch this procession of fans come up to our table and methodically, you know, pick up a copy of The Spirit or Snarf or Bizarre Sex or Dope Comics, and then they would see gay comics. And I watched, they wouldn't even touch it. They wouldn't pick it up to look at it. They would just avoid it and then pick the next title. I saw that happen over and over and over. And I realized, I think for the first time, how deeply homophobic most comics fans were at yeah. that time. And maybe not even comics fans, people, right? And so that was a big lesson of this is not going to be an easy sell in the comic market. So early on, I determined that we had to market it uh, to the core audience. And we did that by buying mailing lists to whatever gay and lesbian bookshops there were. 
and um, uh, there were two or three uh, gay periodical distributors that I was able to mm. find and work things out with. But what it forced me to do was have a completely separate marketing plan and distribution plan for that title, uh, which was a bit of a handicap. And um, it sold respectably. I believe the first issue was reprinted, so it sold at least 20,000 copies. And I ended up, I published five issues. Howard dropped out. After a while, the burden of editing it and maintaining his freelance career became too much of a too much of a time burden. And so uh, Robert Tripto replaced him. And um, Tripto at the time was working, I believe, for a, a newspaper in San Francisco called The Sentinel. And I remember talking to him and uh, just saying, you know, um, gay comics probably ought to be published by someone with much greater reach into the core audience. And uh, so he put me in touch with the, the owner of the Sentinel who agreed to buy the, the trademark was the only thing I own because as always the, the work itself was copyrighted by the respective contributors, but I sold him the, uh, the trademark and uh, the negatives to the issues I had and, you know, whatever I had for a relatively small amount, confident that he would do a better job of it, that I was nice. putting it in better hands. Um, and it ended up, I think it went, I don't know, 20 some issues, maybe you could look that up. Uh-huh. But, but the irony, according to Tripto and others I've talked to, is uh, the owner of the Sentinel completely ignored, for the most part, the uh, the comics. He never even once advertised it in his own San Francisco newspaper, which is hard for me to even fathom. Right. Um, it's like, why would you buy this and then not promote it at in least Barry. at least in the Bay Area, right, where right. your advertising costs you nothing and. Uh, so, but at that point, it was out of my hands, and I was glad to see it went on uh, under two or three different editorships, and I and I, and I'm proud of it. It just it it became a a bit of a handicap for me to devote extra time, energy, and staff to marketing a single series separate right. from everything else we were doing. Right. Well, and, you got it established. Um. So that's among, you know, one of the, the great innovations that Kitchen Sink brought to the world. But you also did work with Trina Robbins and uh, women's comics um, and, you know, bringing women cartoonists to the fore as well. I did my best. Yeah. I mean, early on, I remember Trina complaining that she was not treated with what she thought proper respect from her uh comrades in uh, in the bay area where she lived and uh, from the start I, I never quite understood that i mean sure there's sexism rampant in our society but i i thought you know underground comics among other things it was a reflection of a generation a generation with the uh, with with different attitudes toward uh, certain mm -hmm. uh, women's roles among many other topics and so from the beginning, I tried my best to just look, cartoonists are cartoonists. I don't care what gender you are. 
if you are a good cartoonist, there's going to be a place for you. So Trina did uh, regular work for us. Uh, Sharon Rudolph, Lee Mars, they all had their own solo titles. They were all parts of anthologies. Uh, there were others. I mean, I you know I don't have the Rolodex in my head memorized, but uh, later Kitchen Sink published a Twisted Sisters anthology published or I mean edited by Diane Newman that had dozen or 15 different women contributing to it. Aileen Kaminsky uh, did mm -hmm. two issues of Power Pack for me. So I, I I never don't I don't think I consciously thought this is by a woman. It was this is a comic that I want to publish, period. Uh, you know sure. We Absolutely. we all we can all say we're colorblind, gender blind and you know it, it, it's not always that simple. And um, I can just say I tried my best. I tried to be egalitarian. Yeah. And, and you know, being as, as open to quality work where you found it, irrespective of race or gender, or whoever happens to be doing it. It's just, uh, and you know, it was important to, to open the door and to be open-minded in regard to different points of view regarding uh, sexuality, regarding gender, regarding race, regarding all of these things. And the 70s were a time in which things were old inhibitions were starting to break down and gender roles were starting to break down and things like that. And so it, it was a great moment in which there was this potentiality. And I think Kitchen Sink was among those that really took advantage of that, not advantage, but just in, perhaps enabled it or joined in the um, in the, the general movement, you know, across the culture. So, you know, Kitchen Sink as it develops through, through the uh, 80s, into the 80s and into the 90s, there are a number of titles that I think uh, fans remember with a great deal of fondness, you know. Um, among those, uh, for me in particular, uh, just because of, I, I love things like this and I, I loved not brand uh, by Marvel back in the day when I was a kid, uh, megaton man was one of those by Don Simpson. Ah, yeah. Uh, that was a, a lot of fun. And I think that's one of the ones that's remembered really well. And then of course, I think probably the standout in, in, well, at least in my mind from, from those later years is Xenozoic tales and mark schultz's work how did those not necessarily how those came about but but you know what were your feelings about those titles and about the way kitchen sink was developing the way comics were developing in those those years because it, there is a different sensibility about what you're doing there than what was being done you know in the early 70s with underground yeah. comics well partly it's a generational evolution the market is changing uh in the late 60s, early middle 70s, it's almost entirely a, what I'd call a hippie market. And steadily, as the cliche goes, all those hippies had to get a job and cut their hair and <clears throat> and um, maybe be more clandestine about smoking pot. All the, they, 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 the, the audience became less visible. Head shops were disappearing. And more and more, I was plugged into what I'd call the direct market shops that sell comics of all kind, mainly mainstream comics, but would have a section of alternative comics. So we had to adjust once again to a changing market. 
my preference early on is evidenced by most of the titles is I was always leaning toward humor and set. Mm-hmm. But things like, uh, well, you mentioned Megaton Man was satire, but it was satire aimed toward uh, superheroes. Right. I thought Don Simpson was a young, enormously talented guy who really hit my funny bone. I, I remember when I got the first issue in the mail as a blind submission, <clears throat> I started laughing out loud at it. And uh, I think Pete Poplaski and Dave Schreiner, my editor, came into my office because they didn't hear me laughing out loud very often. And uh, uh, I think the moment they walked in, uh, uh, there, there's a a parody of the Fantastic Four, and the, instead of the thing, it's Yarn Man. He's made <laughs> up yarn, and um, instead of saying it's clobbering time, he said it's knit one pearl two time. I think. <laughs> and at that moment, I was just, I said, "You look at this. You got this. This breaks me up." And of course, they didn't laugh out loud quite as much as me. They were a little askance. But after we all took time and. And assessed it, we just agreed it was fresh, it was funny, it poked fun at at, at Marvel uh, mm-hmm. institutions in a way that broader fans would appreciate. And suddenly I saw we had a title that could be published in color, that could be right alongside the mainstream comics and maybe, you know, get a get a foothold of its own. And 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 that happened. I think the first issue uh sold very well and uh uh, and looked very promising. I think we published 10 issues in color, and then I think we had a return of Megaton Man. And uh, the problem there, and you know, I'll put problem in quotes. I thought Megaton Man should go on indefinitely. It was a real brand, and we were even getting interest from uh, there was a licensor in New York who had brought uh, Pokemon to America who actually wanted to talk to me about megaton man and we were getting some serious interest in it when don decided what he really wanted to do was science fiction and he mm. developed this uh Brit, Brit, uh right series that started as a uh, as a backup in megaton man and then finally he said i don't want to do megaton man anymore i want to do science fiction and that one didn't catch on and he got bitter and he moved on and you know right that was that. I, I think he was, like I described myself, young and in many ways dumb and not looking at the big picture. But, I, you know, I ran into oh, him once at a um, an SPX uh, years ago. I can't remember how many years ago now. And he was having a, uh, I didn't know him. I was just sitting next to him, though, uh, selling what I was selling. And he was it was a particularly bad weekend for him, I think. And he was so ticked off and he just, he ended up at the end of the show just leaving. And he left me a whole stack of Megaton man comics that he hadn't sold that day. He was just so, you know, you could see the frustration on his face. Yeah. Well, uh, he was a hot headed guy and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that's, uh, why he made an abrupt career change and, why he was frustrated with the market, like a lot of us. Um, but, you know. Uh, you start off young and idealistic, and then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. uh, now you mentioned Zenazoic Tales. That's yeah. another one that came over the transom. It was an unsolicited submission. And 
again, well into the 90 percentile range, stuff that comes unsolicited is usually either totally inappropriate or totally amateurish or otherwise, you know, not suitable. And so usually whatever low person on the totem pole there was would just send a form letter to that person. Mm-hmm. But but that day when Mark Schultz's came, I happened to be looking over Dave Schreiner's shoulder when he opened the envelope. And as soon as I saw what Mark sent, I said, uh, I was, I think I was, I was on my way to a phone conference or something. And I said, wow, that one looks promising. Put that one aside. Let's talk about that one. Mm-hmm. And later that day, we looked at it closely and uh, thought it had great potential. It was not the full-blown Cenozoic that we now know, but the genesis of it was there. And uh, so we uh, we ended up publishing uh first story as part of, uh, I think, Death Rattle, number mm-hmm. eight, as I recall. And uh, that was well-received, so uh, I gave uh, Mark... Uh, basically carte blanche to develop this as a regular series, which we naively thought could be a bi-monthly. Mark is such a meticulous artist that uh, that's not a not a schedule he could maintain. Mm-hmm. When I realized, okay, so it's going to have to be a quarterly, I didn't realize it evolved into an annual. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. But, but it was so good. It was so good that uh, people were willing to wait for it. And um, it was also one of the few properties we had that actually was developed outside of comics. And we we ended up in, I think, 1993, 94, with a Saturday morning TV series called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. Yes, yes, I remember that, although I have not seen it since then. Uh, It was was one season. It had the misfortune of being put in. Schedule opposite uh, something new, no one had ever heard of at the moment, called the Power Rangers, <laughs> uh, which ended up totally dominating the ratings. And so, such are the fortunes of life. You ne- you put something out there, you have no idea what's going to happen to it, quality notwithstanding. Yeah, and the irony is when we were being uh, pursued, CBS and Fox both wanted the property. And at that time, CBS had the strongest Saturday morning children's lineup. And so we went with CBS. Had we gone with Fox, Fox is the one that had Power Rangers. So Cadillacs and Dinosaurs probably would have preceded or followed the Power Rangers and arguably would have had significant success on its own. But that was one of those flips of the coin that, you know, just... Uh, you know sure you couldn't how could you tell at the time right. Fox was really an upstart at the time but right. I, you know I'm, I'm thinking of this now it's like so i'm surprised somebody hasn't approached mark schultz about it since then perhaps they have well i uh, I, I i i can't talk about that in this interview well. but um but i i think your your assessment ah. is correct yes Okay. You know, I, I think uh, recently uh, Getty Tartakovsky did uh, Primal uh, uh, on uh, whatever network and um, uh, Cartoon Network and uh, brilliant stuff. Uh, and just I could just see him what he would do with this. But anyway, yeah. um, 
So one of the things that was appealing about that was the, the fact that it, it, you know, early on in his work, obviously Wally Wood is all over the place in that stuff and the EC comics are all over. And that's really your wheelhouse in a lot of places. Mark's influences are really evident at the beginning. Yes, Wood in particular, there's Al Williamson in there. Yeah. Um, but that's really short lived. If you, you look, you know, two, three, four issues into it, there's a distinctive Mark Schultz style evolving, and now it's, you know, Mark Schultz is Mark Schultz. Sure. But he was young uh, at the time, and again, not fully developed. He was new to comics. And uh, so, you know. Yeah, it po points to his great, um, he's a great illustrator. I mean, in the classic sense, like, you know, when we look back to the early 20th century or the, you know, middle 20th century, you see that period of illustration, that magazine illustration and whatnot. Mark Schultz really is is of that, really that persuasion. I mean, he, his, his abilities and his uh, love of that kind of approach to image making is quite clear in everything he does well yep. you know we are getting late obviously and i'm sure you got to go but before we do i i hate to i don't want to i hate to end this on a sour note but I, I think it's really important when we're talking here about your career with kitchen sink that we also touch on what happened at the end with tundra and with kevin eastman and how that came about and and how you survived that because um the the i guess you know the i don't know if you'd call it an implosion but the ending of kitchen sink which i found you know it's just such a, it breaks my heart really um because such a great you know you created this great great thing of of really very much your own and uh it's sad the way it concluded but um of course you've gone on to do great things since so that's it's got its own you know makes its own sense but um can you talk a little bit about what happened there and and how you came out of it well it's hard to succinctly uh reduce that to a short conversation mm -hmm. i would just suffice to say um the comics industry, of course, is continuing to evolve and it's being dominated more and more by big players. And there's there's more money coming into the industry. You've got. Um, uh, I would just say. More competitive challenges that I was worried about, worried about surviving with a market share that was. You know, in a good month, Kitchen Sink might have a one, one and a half percent market share. Um, and with Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and Image and go down the list of all the others ahead of you in line, it's tough for the Kitchen Sinks and the Fantagraphics and the Drawn and Quarterlies of the world to really effectively compete and survive. And so at that point, <coughs> when... Uh, I was nervous. Mm -hmm. Completely unexpected call out of the blue from Kevin, who I had known a bit socially, but I didn't know him well. I certainly knew of the overnight success of the Turtles, and I knew that Kevin had been very successful in terms of the Turtle Empire producing a lot of revenue. But I was totally off, caught off guard when he called me to basically ask if I would consider uh, merging my company with Tundra. 
and I was intrigued enough to fly out to Northampton, Massachusetts to talk to him about it. And I liked Kevin. I, I still like Kevin. He's a, he's a likable guy. Um, and he was in a bit of a desperate situation in that he had put relatives and friends in charge of Tundra and it wasn't run in any conventional sense. It was kind of a, to use a cliche, the inmates running the asylum in the sense that uh, basically artists who contracted with Tundra could determine everything the, the, from the paper and the print run and, you know, whether the cover was embossed, all these things that are normally a publisher's final call, mm-hmm. artists could call. And so the cost of manufacturing often literally exceeded the wholesale price that Tundra got. It was crazy. So in a, in a fairly short term, I believe in an interview, he said he lost three and a half or four million dollars in a short period of time. Wow. And even though he had considerable, you know, uh, resources at that time, he couldn't see continuing to fritter away. Knowing mm-hmm hobby so he asked me to come in with my own business savvy such as it was and my own talent base and backlist and he thought together we could have an amazing enterprise and on paper that sounded great Mm -hmm. and um, I was persuaded to take him up on it the one thing I regret was uh, he said Basically, he was investing in Kitchen Sink, and I thought we would be 50-50 partners, and uh, he insisted on 51% because he had been 50-50 partners with on, on the Turtles with Peter Laird, and they were constantly at loggerheads. He described mm-hmm. the endless, endless meetings they would have arguing with each of them with their lawyer next to him at the table arguing, arguing, arguing. And they had started out friends and they still were, I think, friendly, but they had continual business disagreements. And he said, I don't want it to come to that. He said, I wanted you to be completely in charge of the new kitchen sink tundra uh, combo. But he said, I want that extra percent just in case, just in case. I don't want to argue with you. I want to have the last word. And he was willing to pay me enough for that extra control keep in mind that i never had accumulated any real substantive amount of money and yeah over the the years in kitchen sink was never particularly profitable so to me it was an opportunity to cash out to still be in control and to have something going forward that would be growing and so neither of us really asked enough questions. We both kind of uh, rushed into it without proper due diligence. I think Kevin's expectations of my business skills um, were exaggerated. I ultimately was not able to fix what was wrong with Tundra and its corporate environment or its politics were very, very complex and layered. And Kevin, at the same time, after I made the commitment, was unable to pay me all the installments that he promised me. It turned out he didn't have an unlimited uh, bank account. 
he was unable to make the investment in the company he promised. And so to make a long story very short, I had only been in Northampton about six months when he revealed to me that he couldn't fulfill his promises. Oh, man. Had to find, we had to find a new white knight to rescue both of us. And at that point, things got dark because uh, <laughs> no one else came in with the generosity of spirit that Kevin had. No one else cared about comics the way Kevin did. Everyone else who came in after that was simply bottom line oriented and looking to exploit the company's resources. And uh, I ended up in corporate hell for several more years before it all ended. And I can blame myself for, again, not proper due diligence. I can blame myself for trusting some of Kevin's lieutenants who turned out to be very unsavory characters. I won't name them. Um, it was a horrible experience. Yeah. So it is what it is. I signed the bottom line. I'm responsible. But it didn't turn out the way the optimist in me thought it would. Um, and I don't hold this against Kevin personally. I want to stress I still see him occasionally at shows. I think mm -hmm. Innately still a sweet, good guy. But he also got a lot of it bad advice, in my opinion. And he trusted some of the wrong people. And it is what it is. Well, you you did come out of it, though. I mean, there was a period of time when things were kind of bleak for you um, afterwards, right? When when you lost all of this. And um, there was maybe, uh, you know, I'm thinking right now of, of <laughs> I know it's a ridiculous analogy, but I'm thinking of Paul McCartney when the Beatles ended and going oh. to Scotland and, and uh, trying to, you know, grapple with the loss of something he'd put his life into. And in a way, you were in a similar situation. You can't, you were in a moment where this, you know, you put your life into kitchen sink and uh, just, I mean, it's incalculable how much of yourself went into that. And then here you are with, I think what I think anybody would find to be a, one of the most bleak and daunting moments in their career, you know, facing this moment when you you've built this thing, you've lost it now and you don't know how to come through it and you do come through it. And so how did you reinvent yourself? Um, you know, and how long did it take for you to, to come through? Um, I was, uh, I was fired by my new corporate master in December of 1998. And, um, so starting in January of 99, I think I went through a period of a few months where I would just really Retrospect, maybe clinically depressed. I've never been depressed, but I probably was then. I remember just sitting around all day, kind of in a dark place. And uh, <clears throat> But gradually, things started to happen. And some of the relationships I had built over the years were there to help rescue me, starting with Will Eisner, who early on called me and asked me if I would uh, be his... Uh, uh, representative, his literary agent, and uh, Harvey Kurtzman, Mark Schultz, others the same. So uh, I, with a new partner, created a, a literary agency that uh, for that first year or two filled the gap. And then given my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial nature, you know, other things grew out of that. So I find myself with another 
kind of an octopus situation with uh, different arms holding different things. Um, but I also, with hindsight, I look back and I, I think I'm glad in a way that it, it ended because I think I'm probably going to live longer and be healthier without this stress uh -huh. that came with a larger organization with the you know the number of employees the number of investors and the expectations and the, just the tensions that come with that i don't think i was ever suited to deal with i was best suited for a small company when i had a dozen or you know maybe even 20 employees it was still pretty comfortable but when it got to 30 and beyond and much bigger numbers and mainly the stress of expectations with a corporation it's always what's the bottom line with kitchen yeah. if kitchen sink lost money one year i shrugged because it was my money I, I didn't care i figured next year i'll make money uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> it's not the same way when you have investors with high expectations mm -hmm. so i think um to, to fall in another cliche it might have been a blessing in disguise I think uh, things maybe happen for a reason. Sure. I don't I don't dwell on it. Um, you know, well, you move forward. You run. That's the way I look at it. You know, I think of um, uh, Stanley offering you that job to work on Crazy, and your instinct was, you know, I don't want to work for the man. I don't want to be in this environment. And then you found yourself in a situation where, at the end of the kitchen sink era, where you were exactly in that moment yeah. Yeah. and it's not dennis kitchen and um dennis kitchen is some is is an individual uh and a creative businessman uh, as much as you are a creative artist and and uh you know if we look at the, the development of kitchen sink as a creative enterprise as an expressionist enterprise um you know it's you're as iconoclastic as idiosyncratic as uh, any artist and uh, and that's so. Yeah, in the end, the appropriate thing is, is was for you to escape. I said, I think um, from that environment, and go on to do what you're doing now. Um, so, you know, you came through it. You did the Al Cap book. You did the Harvey Kurtzman book. You've been an art agent for all of these incredible people, um, and you're still you're working on a variety of projects now. I mean, what I was going to ask you what. Is there another biography in the works or is there another exhibition or what is it that Dennis Kitchen is working on now and looking well, forward to? Yeah, always, uh, always uh, juggling, Jeff. Um, um, the, the book I just committed to do next is one on the uh, career of an artist probably most of your viewers never heard of named <clears throat> Boris Artsy-Bashev. Oh, but, yes. Uh, you mentioned that before, yeah. You did a great book. Uh, who's the artist you were talking about? Harrison Katie came before. Yeah, Harrison Katie, unbelievably beautiful from what I've seen online, and and uh, and this book also. So this is exciting. Yeah. So the Harrison Katie book I co-wrote with my youngest daughter Violet, who's a terrific writer and cartoonist in her own right. And um, so together we did that one for Beehive Books, which is an amazing, wonderful publisher in Philadelphia. And the <clears throat> the design and production standards on the Katie book were just absolutely first rate. 
and it'll be an identical package for the Artsy Bashev book. Artsy Bashev, as the name perhaps suggests, was a Russian emigre who came to the States as a teenager, penniless, and made himself into one of the, I think, better known illustrators of his era. What appeals to him, to me, is the combination of his being a cartoonist and a surrealist, because I see myself with that same kind of combination. And he did uh, the best kind of uh, anthropomorphic machinery that I've ever seen anyone do. He could take mm. the boring kind of uh, industrial equipment and put a face and limbs on it and eyes and make that come to life. And any listeners who are remotely curious, just look up Boris Artsybashev and the Google machine, and you'll see some examples pretty quickly. And I think you'll either go, wow, I want to know more about him. Uh, and maybe you won't, but uh, <clears throat> but it's it's the next project. It's fantastic. <clears throat> uh, you know, bringing to light uh, illustrators and artists, cartoonists that we may not may not always be in the the pub in you know the public eye. Uh, I mean, these are perhaps well known to aficionados, but not necessarily known to the general, you know, comics uh, audience. Although I think you're extending beyond the comics audience with the, the, this work, you're you're engaging something uh, broader than that. Um, are, do, are you, do you personally own uh, some of the artwork by these guys, by Harrison Katie and Artsy Bashev? Harrison Katie, yes. It's more broadly available. Artsy Bashev art is almost impossible to find. I'm not sure where it ended up. Some of it probably was kept by the publishers. Uh, he did over the years many, many covers for Time magazine, and I think oh. their policy is to keep it. But there are a lot of other illustrations he did for a variety of magazines and book publishers, and the whereabouts are unknown. My daughter and I spent a couple of days at the Syracuse University where his papers are, and there's some very intriguing papers, but virtually no art, and they had no clue either what happened to his art. So it's going to take more digging. We're really just, we've just jumped into this. We've got 18 months to deliver it, so it's going to be a couple of years or more before this book is available. Mm -hmm. But that's a, that's a project that's foremost. Um, I'm also working uh, right now um, with a small press in Denver called Tinto. They're collecting 150 or so of my better chipboard drawings, which mm -hmm. are, I do usually at night while the TV or stereo are playing. Um, they're these spontaneous kind of surrealistic cartoons that just emerge. It's kind of like automatic writing. I'm entertaining myself. I don't know what's going to emerge until they're maybe about halfway done. And then my conscious mind kind of finishes them. But it's a thing, kind of a game I play with myself. And the best ones, I think, are worthy. And so Ted at in Tinto Press is... Uh, Going to be doing a Kickstarter on that uh, this spring. So anybody who's interested, uh, that's uh, that's coming out. I'm uh, I'm uh, boy. It's hard to say. I'm working on some projects that I think are premature to mention. I'll just say my hands are full. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I wonder. Um, there was a. a 
a comic uh, that um, in one of the books out on you, I think maybe it's the oddly compelling art of Dennis Kitchen, um, where you talk uh, about working out a deal with the almighty. Uh, ah, to take, take your collections with you. Have, have you worked out a deal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one's called uh, My Five Minutes with God. <laughs> <laughs> so so if you got that worked out, you know, if you know what you're going to um, be doing. <laughs> no, I'm still I'm still negotiating, Jeff. <laughs> Well, Dennis, do you, do you ever at this point, you know, I mean, there's still a lot, to, a lot of time left. There's still a lot to do. But do you ever look at what you've done over the course of the last 50 years and and just look back with kind of awe? I mean, because it really is quite something uh, what you and and all of the underground cartoonists did. But I think your role is particularly important. Uh, as publisher uh, over 40 years, uh, you know, when you look back at what you've established and enabled in comics, it, it, you must feel incredibly proud. Well, uh, I, I do in a sense, yes, but I, I have to say, I, I try not to uh, use the word awe. No, I would never, never, ever do that. I, I think I'm kind of modest by nature and I don't like the I don't like flattery in general, although I appreciate your kind comments. I'm reminded by what Will Eisner told Art Spiegelman when Spiegelman was just starting to get a lot of acclaim from Mouse. And Will said to him, don't read your press clippings. <laughs> and um, I don't know that Art listened to that or not, but I try to take it all with a certain grain of salt because, you know, I'm more interested in what's on my plate right now, what my next deadline, my next drawing, whatever I've committed to, as well as I love being, I, I, I live in a, a paradise in Western Massachusetts where I have a woods and paths and a river and plants that I take care of. And I, I have uh, collections that I like to spend time with that are very satisfying. And I'm trying to find a balance where it's not just all about accomplishments that, you know, mm -hmm. so-called fans are aware of or that has some impact on comics history. I, I'm trying to, you know, have a life that's not just centered around a profession. Um, yeah. Living life. Yeah. You know, I've got a family and I, I have... A, children and grandchildren I adore and there's uh, life is too short and trying to balance it and uh, my problem as my wife reminds me constantly is my ambition uh, exceeds my available time <laughs> and so I find myself too often saying yes to a project that intrigues me and then later having second thoughts and sometimes having to bail so I'm consciously far more judicious these days about what I say yes to and it it has to be something that really really interests me I'm trying to slowly scale back on the agenting part which is the least interesting part of my career and that's something that I can slowly I, I think eventually eliminate mm -hmm. um, so the 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 ideal is to uh, have fun, be creative. If it pleases other people, that's a bonus. But uh, 
it's like these chipboard drawings. I never did those to share with anyone. If someone was visiting or, you know, my wife or somebody would see them. But but they were never intended for publication. But now I feel there's enough of them I'm proud of that, yeah, it's not going to be a bestseller by any means, but I think they're worthy. So that evolved eventually into a project, but not intentionally. And I, I think there are other things in the back of my mind that that vary from things that are only for my own eyes to things that might end up as an exhibit or a book or whatever. Um, and it's sometimes hard to be objective about those things. Well, it's it, I'm looking forward to more from Dennis Kitchen, one way or the other, whether it's uh, chipboard drawings or uh, these extraordinarily interesting uh art books that you're putting together which are really exciting if i have the if i can come up with the coin i'm really interested in that harrison katie book uh, dennis it's been it's been great it's been so great talking to you about all of this stuff and i really appreciate your willingness to be forthcoming and uh sharing your career and your insights with us it's been uh, a lot of fun well thanks jeff you're a you're a great guy to talk to and uh I wish you well with your own career that I've been paying more attention to. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's just great to, to have a great conversation with you. And thanks. Dennis, thanks Thank again. You bet. Adios. Bye-bye. Wow. I, I have to thank Dennis for his generosity, uh, for the amount of time he spent with me. That was over two separate sessions, and Dennis and I talked for like four hours over the course of two sessions, even more than four hours. And so, uh, you know, to take the time out of his day, uh, it was really kind of him, and I really appreciate it. And I hope you guys appreciate it, too. And if you do, uh, of course, you can show your appreciation for Dennis by uh, following him on Instagram picking up one of his many books, uh, checking out The Oddly Compelling Art of Dennis Kitchen, which is still available uh, from Dark Horse Comics. I think you can get it on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, check into that. Pick up everything, including The Kitchen Sink, the definitive interview with Dennis Kitchen by John Cook from Tomorrow's Publications, tomorrows.com. You can get this book there. You can also get it on Amazon, I think, or wherever you, wherever good, good comics related material is sold kitchen sink press the first 25 years by dave schreiner all three of those are really wonderful and uh very informative and uh just a, really a joy to look at too there's lots of great images in in all of them so uh generous helping of dennis work dennis's cartooning is in uh, the john cook book as well as the oddly compelling art of dennis kitchen we talked a lot about the art of Harvey Kurtzman, mad genius of the comics from Abrams Books. Look for that. That's available on Amazon. It should be available in all, any good bookstore uh, that carries information or biographical information about great cartoonists. That's a wonderful book. I loved it. I, you know, I just I, I devoured it uh, over the holidays, and uh, so I, you know, and I obviously because we talked a lot about it. So look into that because it's a wonderful book filled with uh, a lot of great detail, wonderful uh, biographical information, and great art. So look for the art of Harvey Kurtzman uh, by Dennis Kitchen and Paul Buell. Um, you can also go to denniskitchen.com uh, and follow him again on Instagram. Uh, 
where you'll see lots of his great chipboard drawings uh, showing up from time to time. Really, you know, surrealistic imaginings from the fertile imagination of Dennis Kitchen. So, uh, continuing this thread uh, about underground comics, next time we've got cartoonist Glenn Head, who is one of the leading luminaries, really, of the second generation of underground cartoonists. And if you've read any of the best of 2021 graphic novel lists that came out at the end of last year, certainly you saw Glenn Head's work there uh, represented by his latest graphic autobiography, Chartwell Manor, which is a powerful, powerful, brave, and compelling story uh, about his experience as a young adolescent, a young teen uh, at a boarding school uh, in New Jersey called Chartwell Manor, uh, wherein he uh, and, and numerous other young boys were subjected to physical uh, and sexual abuse at the hands of a really terrible uh, superintendent or director of the uh, the school, <clears throat> and, uh, and and the work itself is just brilliantly illustrated and uh, unsparing in its detail and its discussion of really the fallout of that experience on Glenn's life and on on the lives of those who experienced uh, those those same things with him uh, at Chartwell Manor. So it's a powerful work, and I encourage you to to look for it uh, wherever good graphic novels and comics are sold. Chartwell Manor by Glenn Head. He will be on next time talking about that, talking about his career as an illustrator and a cartoonist, his work, uh, his previous graphic novel, uh, Chicago, another uh, biographical, autobiographical piece. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it's, it's certainly going to be an interesting and provocative conversation. And then, of course, there's me. <laughs> and uh, you can follow me on Instagram at greenscreencomic, at greenscreencomic, where you can keep up with all of my doodlings and uh, creative enterprises, whatever I happen to be doing. Shows up there on Instagram first. So at greenscreencomic, that's where I am these days. You can also, if you want some more, you can check me out at jeffgrogan.com, uh, where you'll see some of my previous work. You, you might be listening to this podcast there. Just head on over, you know, slide over to the uh, um, menu bar and check out Portfolio under comic books or animation or whatever else is up there. Uh, and that'll fill you in with whatever info you need about my previous work. Uh, and But, again, what I'm doing now showing up on Instagram, so follow me there. Um, also, Patreon, right? Uh, <clears throat> there's Patreon. Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Or, no, <laughs> Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. That's the way it goes over there. Anything you can see uh, to contributing towards the show is greatly appreciated there. Uh, I try to make it worth your while. Every now and again, something will show up in your mailbox, uh, un unsolicited and and hopefully is a pleasant surprise. And whatever you can do helps keep the show going. And uh, of course, if you can't contribute, I understand. It's no, no apologies necessary. Uh, there are other ways you can help out the show. And of course, uh, writing a review, giving a rating, a five-star rating, please, <laughs> and wherever you do uh, listen to the podcast is always very helpful because it brings more listeners listeners into the show. And please share the show. Uh, be sure to tell your, your comic book geek friends all about the, the show if you find it entertaining, informative, whatever. 
Um, other, don't don't keep it to yourself. Share it, <laughs> uh, because uh, the more the merrier. And that'll do it for this time. So uh, thank you for sticking with me over the course of this long interview with Dennis and myself. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you look forward to next time with Glenn Head. So until then, be safe, be well, take care of your loved ones. And uh, hey, thanks for listening. 